From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An archaeologist from Cortez explores ancient ruins in the West. His research focuses on something a little less ancient, historic graffiti. In my mind, there's no difference between the graffiti that was left by the early pioneers versus that of the prehistoric people in the site. The only difference is the culture that put it there. What he hopes the writings will reveal about a missing part of archaeological history. Then, dogs get cancer, just like people. Colorado researchers hope asking owners a lot of questions about their pets will help explain why. We ask about any human food they get. Do you feed your dog peppers? What a local veterinarian is hoping to learn about the risk factors dogs face and how that might translate to cancer in people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The ruins of ancient multi-story stone buildings stand near Farmington, New Mexico. It's called Aztec Ruins National Monument, although that's a misnomer. Ancestral Puebloans built these about 900 years ago. The largest of these buildings consists of more than 400 masonry rooms, and on the ceilings, there's graffiti. Who's it from, and what does it tell archaeologists about the history of the site? Cortez historian Fred Blackburn is engaged in that research. He joins us from Cortez. Hi, Fred. Well, I'm glad to be here. How did you get interested in what we might call historic graffiti? It began a long time ago in the mid-70s with inscriptions that were left by the early archaeological expeditions in southeastern Utah. And in the early 1990s, we discovered as, as we worked on these that they were really primary historical documents that could be used to trace the routes that uh, the expeditions took, as well as which of the alcoves archaeological artifacts had been removed from. Since then, I became very interested in inscriptions as primary historic documents. Tell me a little bit about something you've learned specifically from these signatures. In the early days, we developed a term called reverse archaeology that allowed us to trace artifacts back east to the different museums where, after they were excavated, they were deposited. So we've been able to connect artifacts back to their locations We've been able to look at the people that were involved in those early expeditions and understand their biographies and who they were and what they did in aiding Southwest archaeology, essentially. Because it's not just wind and water that's changed these sites. In some ways, this is really archaeology on archaeologists, how people have changed these places. Yes, uh, and it's... It's a very interesting combination of history and archaeology. You have to know both to accomplish what we're doing. What are you learning as you study graffiti in Aztec Ruins National Park specifically? In Aztec, one of our primary goals there was to connect a time period between 1880 and 1915 that there's essentially a huge gap in the knowledge of what was discovered in those ruins when they were first entered. I'm curious, what makes these signatures different than graffiti? I mean, weren't these name-signing visitors just defacing an important historical artifact, a lot like vandals might today? 
Uh, in my mind, there's no difference between the graffiti that was left by the early pioneers versus that of the prehistoric people in the sites. The only difference is the culture that put it there. And one of the fascinating things for me is the defamation of our own cultural graffiti. I don't think it's been viewed the way it should be. And that's it, it's kind of a two-edged sword here, Avery, in that do we want more stuff on those sites? No. It would, <laughs> what we're looking at is the exploration phase and discovery phase of these different archaeological sites in the Southwest. So who were these people? Did they take photographs? Did they have journals? Can we can reconstruct the archaeological history between 1880 and 1915? And this is a very multicultural site. Ancient Puebloans built these structures, and they're the ancestors of many Southwestern Native American tribes. Oh, yes. In Aztec, it's especially fun because... We're seeing an integration of multiple cultures, not just you have the Hispanic history, you have the um, Apache and, and uh, Ute histories, and, and you also have the prehistoric histories because Aztec was very much, very much a center of, of civilization, especially in the 9 to 1100 A.D.s. And it still is. It's very unique in that the, the ruin itself is still a big part of the existing community. So they've merged in a continuum. Now, you've used the word discover to talk about Western archaeologists coming across these ruins. But like we said, Native Americans descended from ancient Puebloans still live in the United States. And for many Southwestern tribes, this site is culturally and spiritually significant even today. Do you involve tribes in your research? And how do you think about studying graffiti in a place that's still culturally important to Native people? It's a continuum of, of history. It just doesn't happen to be the modern Pueblos, who you are absolutely correct. They have a huge investment in this. So, yes, their history is there and living, and that'll be the interesting part of this because at some point they will be involved in coming in for consultation to kind of review our work as well. All of the different Pueblos and Native American tribes have a voice in what becomes of these things and what it may mean. So we're seeing them come through all the time, which is delightful. You bet it's coming home for them. Is there a cutoff in your mind for the dates of the signatures that you're studying? There is no cutoff. You learn, as we're finding in Aztec, that there's virtually minimal, at the most, of, of later graffiti found in that site. We're finding primarily signatures from 1880 to 1915 that were left. And there's, of course, others within it, but very small percentage. We're dealing with uh, 140 to 100-year-old inscriptions. What do the inscriptions look like? Were they done with quill and ink, lead pencils? I wonder, are they easy to see? Well, they are not easy to deal with. The, we're dealing with signatures that are in Spencerian script that are as small as one quarter centimeter high, which is 
means that we have to document very differently. And we use digital photography, programs that magnify enhanced light, and another computer to draw the inscription off of as a preform. But they're tiny, tiny. So as far as how they were done, yes, the first registries were quill pen and ink. And we, th- we think that they were actually left in the sites so people could register upon the beams, um, much as you would as registering to go into a motel or into a special site. The next phase is the true lead pencil. Later on, uh, yeah, it becomes, in the more modern stuff, ink. They, they have a sequence of how they are done as time went on, but... Initially, the date, the place the person was from, and as time went on, they would often leave their name, names, no date, maybe a place, until we reach the modern age where it's just a quick initial because they know, people know they're not supposed to put it up there. I understand that a lot of this graffiti is on the ceilings of rooms. Why did visitors in the 1800s write their signatures in such hard-to-reach places? Well, that's a really good question because that's something we had to figure out. We could see concentrations of signatures in certain places on the roof latias and beams. Others, there was none. And then we began to see that they had entered these individual rooms through the sidewalls, which are approximately a meter or, let's say, three foot thick. And, and when they blasted through these walls, it left a big rubble pile on probably what also had fill in it, enough so that they could either make platforms or it was deep enough they could stand on this debris and reach the ceiling. There are also more intents where people had to crawl down through the spaces that they broke up and on the beams and latias directly above their heads. And for us, that's a gold mine because we know in 1915, the rooms that we are currently working in were cleaned out and uh, all the rubble was removed from the floors. And as a result of that, it's a rare exception that we have any inscription on the ceiling past 1915. What are a few of the most interesting inscriptions that you've found so far in the Aztec ruins? We're finding several. The first one that we really came across was an inscription hidden way up on a latia, and it said, Edward, Prince of Wales. It had a very different script. Well, we did our research just because it was fun and found that he was never at Aztec ruin, and most likely it was a remembrance of his birth in 1894 by someone from England because the script was very different. Uh, second, second inscription that we came across is a lady named Phila Bliven, and her, her inscription that we found was in January of 1894, and she wrote a 115-word essay on a beam regarding her thoughts on, on these people in Aztec ruin. Now, you've said that leaving your mark, it's an innate human urge. And I have to ask, in all of your decades of working amongst Southwest ruins, have you ever left your signature? Yes, but very subtle. Twice, to be honest. And it was in a 
stabilization of a ruin where I was hauling water in to help stabilization with mules. And we had a rock on our way that we broke out of the way so we could get through. And we two of us signed our initials on the back. And in the reconstruction, I subtly hid mine in chinking. And I doubt anybody would see it. Well, perhaps somebody will study those in the future. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Fred Blackburn is a historian who is studying inscriptions in ancient ruins in New Mexico. He joined us from Cortez. Garden of the Gods' iconic sandstone spires draw millions of visitors every year. But before tourists arrived, this area was, and still is, sacred to Ute people. A handful of young southern Ute tribal members traveled to the area for culture camp this summer. Before we were removed down to the reservation back in the mid-1800s, and we lived in this area, the Mowich Band of Utah creator put us here. That's Cassandra Atencio. She's a camp leader and works in the tribe's cultural preservation department. Her great-grandparents lived on the Front Range before the Southern Ute Indian Reservation was created. It's important because our people were here, and it's important to let our youth know that we are still connected to this area. The annual culture camp dates back to the 1970s, but this is only the second year it's gone on the road, teaching young people traditional skills in ancestral lands. The five middle and high schoolers who attended learned about archaeology, identified plants and their traditional uses, and even set up a teepee. Edward Box III, the tribe's cultural preservation director, hopes this this preserves traditions that are at risk of being lost. Our younger generation are not, we're not brought up traditionally like Cassandra or myself. We're kind of the last generation that were actually raised by those, um, our, our grandparents who their parents are from this area. It made an impression on 17-year-old Jasmine Carmineros. I asked her what she'd tell her friends and family what, when she got back home to Ignacio how fun it is and how amazing it is to travel and walk through the same places that our ancestors went. Culture Camp, showing the younger generation what it means to be Southern Ute, the way their elders showed them. When Colorado Matters continues, why do so many dogs develop cancer? And why are golden retrievers even more at risk? A local veterinarian is working on figuring this out. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. Now that more states are legalizing weed, the focus has shifted to legalizing in a way that remedies the negative impacts of the war on drugs. As reporter Natalie Moore from WBEZ in Chicago tells us, we can't allow rich white people, rich corporations to swoop in when you have people who were sent to prison for smoking or for selling marijuana. Social equity and cannabis legalization on the latest episode of On Something, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. For dog owners, this may sound familiar. Oh, I know. You're really excited. Are you ready to eat? Okay. That's Dr. Kelly Deal sharing a happy moment with her Labrador retriever, Emily. Dr. Deal's a veterinarian with the Morris Animal Foundation in Denver. She's working on understanding a difficult aspect of dog ownership cancer. It's a leading cause of death in dogs. The foundation is studying why that's the case by tracking the lives of more than 3,000 golden retrievers. I spoke with Dr. Deal about her research in July. Hi, Kelly. Hi. 
These golden retrievers are normal pets, living ordinary lives in homes across the country. But you're collecting an unprecedented amount of data through vet visits and owner questionnaires. How detailed are you getting? Can you give me some examples of the questions you're asking? Sure. So what we're looking at is, again, to get a really deep dive into especially environment, lifestyle. One of my favorite questions is in the diet section where we ask people about, you know, everything from the treats to the obviously the dog food that they feed. But we ask about any human food they get. And we ask about, do you you know, feed your dog peppers. And we'll even ask, what color peppers do you give? Green peppers, red peppers, yellow peppers, orange peppers. So that gives you an idea of the level of detail that we're looking for. So you want to know if owners are giving their dogs bell peppers, like from a grocery store. Right, right. And how long are these questionnaires that owners are filling out every year? They are over 100 pages. They're online, so people click through them, but they take a long time. Our participants typically say it can take them an hour to two hours every year to fill out these forms. So this is a huge undertaking. And one of the primary goals of the study is to better understand cancer in golden retrievers. How big of a problem is cancer for dogs? Uh, It's a big problem. We know from statistics that approximately 6 million dogs are diagnosed with cancer every year. That's a lot. Is that around the world? Uh, No, United States. Wow. So it's it's pretty extensive. And we know that golden retrievers, unfortunately, have a very high cancer rate in the United States compared to other breeds of dogs. And some estimates say that 60% to 70% of golden retrievers will develop cancer and die of cancer in their lifetime. So they were a breed that we selected partly because of their cancer risk, partly, if you know golden retrievers, they're a very popular dog in the United United States. And we needed 3,000 dogs of a certain age. And so that gave us a big pool to draw from. And lastly, we know that golden retriever owners are super motivated folks, and they're very, very passionate and in tune with this problem of cancer. So there, we had a very easy time recruiting people into the study because of, again, their sort of mobilization around this issue as well. And I imagine that in understanding an environment, you need dogs spread out across the country. So are golden retrievers pretty well represented regionally? Yes, they are. And that is another reason that they were a good choice for us. We knew there were a lot out there and we got actually really lucky. We divided the United States into five different regions and we are equally represented in all those regions. It's We're in the 48 contiguous states and people always ask, well, what about Alaska and Hawaii? And part of the reason we had to exclude those states is because some of our samples need to be sent overnight to our biorepository, and those were just too far out of uh, out of the region for us to be able to get those samples. That makes sense. You recently studied some results that actually aren't cancer-related, um, but they came as a result of this long-term study. You wanted to know more about how spaying and neutering affects dogs' long-term health What did you find? Right. Well, this was really interesting. And of course, all of our dogs have now what we would say aged out of. They're all over three or four years of age. So we thought, why don't we look at young dogs? Many of them are spayed and neutered at this point in their lives and see what the health outcomes are for those young dogs with spay neuter. And two questions that are really important and have been discussed a lot in the veterinary world are obesity 
and what we call non-traumatic orthopedic injury. And a non-traumatic orthopedic injury is, obviously, you're not hit by a car and get a, a um, broken leg. These are injuries typically to the joints. And for those armchair athletes out there, torn cruciates, we see them in dogs. And obviously, they happen in people. So we wanted to look back because there had been previous reports of these sort of negative consequences of spaying and neutering dogs at a young age. And that's what we looked at. And what did you find? And what we found was very interesting. We found data that supported some of these previous claims. In our dogs under six months of age, if they were neutered or spayed at under six months of age, they had a significantly higher risk of a non-traumatic orthopedic injury compared to dogs who were older when they were spayed or neutered or what we call intact animals, right, that they have not been spayed or neutered. We also found that obesity risk was seen in all the groups compared to intact dogs. So all the age brackets we looked at had a significantly increased uh, incidence of obesity. And what was really interesting was there wasn't an association between obesity and these non-traumatic ligament injuries. Because you might say, well, of course, if a patient or dog was overweight, well, sure, they'd be at a higher risk for this injury. But it's independent of that. So in other words, even if a person's dog stays at a normal weight after it's been spayed or neutered young, it still might be at risk for these injuries. Right, exactly. And does that mean that you're more cautious about recommending spaying and neutering for all dogs? Um, No. What we looked at specifically, of course, was golden retrievers. And people were interested particularly in large breed dogs and these orthopedic injuries because that's where we tended to see them and where previous literature suggests, hey, maybe for large breed dogs, we should wait before we do a spay and neuter procedure. And that makes sense because the larger the dog, they tend to go through puberty later than if you had a Yorkie or a Chihuahua, a smaller breed dog. So we, we kind of knew that, and it, it makes sense a little bit. We know that reproductive hormones are really important in proper bone and joint health and development, and so we're taking away those hormones very suddenly and at different ages. Is what you're seeing right now in the dogs that you're studying seven years into this research what you expected to be seeing? Good question. Yes. At first, we were a little slow in our cancer diagnoses, but we're now seeing them accelerate, unfortunately. And these dogs are six or seven years of age, and it's really tragic, but not completely unexpected. And we're seeing more and more and more cancer deaths. And when you finish the study several years from now, what do you hope it will reveal? Our hope is that we can uncover some risk factors for cancer. Of course, the first conclusion is going to be cancer risk factors in Goldens in the United States, which sounds pretty specific. But the hope is that we will, these um, findings will translate to other dogs maybe other animals, and I'm going to include people, uh, and you, in, in that where we can start making recommendations to owners. The other thing we hope is that it will stimulate other research, right? Like we'll find an association and people go, wow, that's interesting. And then you can take a deeper dive into a particular issue then. The study, like you said, it could also help the medical community also better understand human disease as well. Can you tell me more about that? Right. Well, I think a great example for 
comparative medicine, which is becoming much more popular, and dogs are becoming much more popular as a research animal, I hate to use that term, but you get the idea, for, than a mouse or a rat sitting in a cage. They share our environment. Their lifetime is compressed, but in many ways, they're very similar, more similar to humans. We know, for example, to get back to your question, that osteosarcoma, which is a primary bone tumor, it's the most common bone tumor we see in dogs, tends to be large breed dogs, is an excellent model for osteosarcoma, which affects kids. 10,000 dogs are diagnosed with osteosarcoma in the United States every year. About 800 kids are. But this is devastating. Typically, these kids and dogs are amputated. Um, They need chemotherapy. But very rarely in dogs do we see anybody live over two years of age. And it is extremely rare to cure this disease. It is a very good model, unfortunately, for what they see in pediatrics. And we, with osteosarcoma, A procedure was developed several years ago at Colorado State University, and a veterinary oncologist surgeon there worked with a pediatric oncologist to pioneer what's called limb-sparing surgery, an attempt to save, you know, can we save the limb in a patient with osteosarcoma so they don't have to undergo an amputation? And it was very successful, and those techniques are applied now to kids. This is an example where veterinary medicine crosses over into medicine for humans as well. Right. Absolutely. And it's probably important to note that when we're talking about dogs as research animals, this is different than traditional animal testing. You're not causing a disease in any of these animals. That's a good point. And that's what makes dogs particularly attractive. They develop these diseases naturally, just like we develop certain diseases naturally. And therefore, they're a much better model than, uh, you know, a genetically altered rodent like a mouse that we can make them obese because we change their genetic makeup or a rat that people put, you know, transplant a tumor to look at behavior. These are animals that develop diabetes, heart disease, cancer, just like we do. As a part of your work in the study, you've been on call to answer questions for vets and owners on nights and weekends and on holidays for years now. What keeps you going with this study? Why does it matter to you? Um, I would say... I practiced for a long time. As a veterinarian? As a veterinarian. And I was in specialty medicine, which means we would often get the really difficult cases. And over and over again, people asked me, why did this happen? And they would be anguished about that question. And if I could give them a better answer for cancer or for why a disease develops, or even better still, tell them, if you avoid this, you're going to decrease your dog's risk of developing a bone tumor by X percentage. Or if you wait till your golden retriever is a year of age or over six months, and you are really going to decrease their risk of tearing out a, a cruciate ligament or developing obesity, I would love to be able to do that to people because so many times you go, I don't know. And that's really unsatisfying and and hard. Um, I would love to make my dog's life healthier and know how to do that. And so I'm really, really excited. And it keeps me going. Um, Yes, many of us take those on call and walk people through some very difficult situations, but it's absolutely worth it. 
Dr. Kelly Deal is a veterinarian. She is the Senior Director of Science and Communications for the Morris Animal Foundation. We spoke in July. Her research into what causes cancer in dogs is ongoing. Thanks for joining us today from listener-supported CPR. You care about in-depth news from around the state. There are so many more stories to tell, and the way we do that is with your support. Thank you. Thank you for making this kind of storytelling possible. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill.